This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of a several cups of coffees and honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech-generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech-generating device? Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. All right, welcome back to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional Resources for the Pediatric Clinician. I'm your host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional and the Fed category, with emphasis on diagnosing food allergies, or in short for the SLPs in the room, when can our little ones actually safely eat? 
On that note, I'm excited to introduce the South Carolina Allergy and Immunology Society President, Dr. Greg Black. And I met this dear friend a few years ago when our little ones shared a classroom at preschool together. And once I found out he was a pediatric allergist and uh, even better, the one whose name showed up on the reports for a bunch of my patients, um, I may or may not have stalked him in the church preschool hallways to pick his brain on everything from um, milk and dairy allergies to EOE. I mean, like I literally stalked him. I like waited in my car and then hopped down the hallway after him to like pester him with like an overabundance of questions. So I'm really glad I didn't scare you away, Greg. Um, I'm pleased to say that uh, my consistent encouragement or hounding, depending on how you look at this, um, it paid off. And this uh, published and delightful researcher, but more importantly, mentor, um, clinician and speaker. He was gracious enough to allow me to do a couple of interviews on all things peat allergies and feeding disorders. And I am, we are blessed to have him here today. So on that note, take it away, Greg, enlighten us on how we diagnose a food allergy, but uh, start with uh, where you went to school and your background before I pestered you in a hallway. All right. Thank you, Michelle. That was a great introduction. I first got my uh, love of pediatric medicine because I did an internship at Greenville Memorial Hospital when I was an undergraduate, but that translated into me getting my medical degree from MUSC. After that, I became a resident, not only in internal medicine, but pediatrics. So I did internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, once I graduated from there, my wife and I moved to New Zealand where we did a year of overseas medicine, um, which was a lot of fun, but mostly I did internal medicine over there. And that's when, after that was done, I did my allergy and immunology fellowship at Tulane in New Orleans. Uh, from there in 2012, I moved back to South Carolina where I became a private practice allergist, but I'm also an associate professor of, uh, a, a clinical associate professor of pediatrics at the South Carolina School of Medicine. So not only do I see patients in our private practice, I also teach the residents, uh, the pediatric residents, they come to our office so they can learn allergy. Our office specializes in the treatment of uh, anaphylaxis, allergic rhinitis, asthma, uh, chronic eczema or atopic dermatitis, eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, chronic urticaria, um, and several other things, but those are the highlights. Uh, we do consults in the hospital, but for the most part, we see patients uh, on an outpatient basis from, from new self-referred patients uh, and outpatient referrals from other primary care doctors. Um, the, the biggest thing that I think we need to cover, uh, at least in this first episode, is um, how patients are tested for food allergy uh, and who's appropriate. Um, one of the biggest things I find um, to be a barrier to referral is this idea that somebody has to be old enough to be tested. Yeah. Um, and especially when it comes to your profession, you're struggling with this problem in an infant. And in reality, we can skin test anybody over 30 days of age. Uh, it's just that what are you going to be skin testing them for? Uh, with pediatricians and family doctors, there's this idea that you can't skin test them until until they're two. Um, the, the confusion there is that it, they're unlikely to have a 
positive pollen skin test until two years of age. But with indoor allergies and specifically with food allergies, milk, egg, peanut, soy, wheat, over 30 days of age, as long as the patient is relatively healthy, they can be skin tested to any number of those things. Uh, an accurate diagnosis from that early time period can really help uh, drive your approach to getting that patient better fed, less symptomatic, and growing and being more healthy. Um, Tradition. Tra- you go ahead. Hey, I'm sorry. You just, yay. You just answered like so many questions in like the first three minutes. That's the bane of the speech pathology existence. We get called in on an early intervention on referrals when they come straight out of the NICU um, or, you know, they're born and they have all of these oral aversions. And, you know, by the time we actually set foot in the door or they come to our clinics, normally they're eight to 12 weeks age. And by then they've probably had eczema for the last six weeks. Um, I walk in the door, I have seen 10 weeks old with eczema to the severity that their fingertips are already cracked, um, that their scalp is covered in it. And when they go to latch onto a bottle, they're arching and they're reaching away while they're still trying to latch to a bottle or because of the weird world that I'm in, even if they're attaching at breast, they, they go to make a seal. They, they do a couple suck swallow birth cycles and then they reach out and they cry and pediatricians take that as a cue for GERD and they go chasing GERD where when I walk in the door, I'm like, that's not a sign and symptom of GERD. To me, that's the first sign is a food allergy. Are they allergic to the dairy or the soy in the mother's breast milk or in the formula? But trying to convince pediatricians because I am only a speech pathologist, and unfortunately that is frowned upon, but trying to get them from a referral from the pediatrician to get them to you, that can be like pulling teeth. Yeah, um, I would, the, the, the issue there that many of your practitioners um, could, benefit, could benefit from is to know that many commercial forms of insurance allow for independent referral. So for instance, any Blue Cross Blue Shield allows for independent referral. Uh, so in that situation, you as the speech pathologist, if you're contemplating a diagnosis of food allergy um, and you're there with the parents, if you know what their insurance is and if it's Aetna or Humana or United or Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, many of those patients can call our office and make an independent referral. Now, for your Medicaid patients, unfortunately, I mean, un- I'm not saying unfortunately just because of the primary care situation, but in those situations, the, the primary care doctor does control the route to referral. So it's important for your Medicaid patients to get the primary care doctor on board so we can get an early referral. And that's interesting what you said, because there are many instances of food-induced anaphylaxis um, where a patient may have immediate hives, uh, lip swelling, tongue swelling, cough, wheezing, uh, vomiting, perhaps even going into shock. And those are your more severe forms of anaphylaxis. Where when you go back in the history, the mother or the father will talk about the first couple of ingestions, small as they were, and it does present in those first few ingestions as oral aversion. Uh, perhaps. And we think that the child is interpreting that through oral itching or oral irritation. Um, it's in, you know, if it's not presenting with rash at first, the first couple of times that they may have tried egg or peanut butter or something like that, uh, you, you see that. Absolutely. 
So, okay. So then our little ones prior to developing the eczema, you're saying that they could have that, that, that break and seal could actually be that their, their inner oral surfaces are irritated. I had never thought about that potential. Irritated or, or in fact, itchy, which is a very new sensation for them. And they don't like yeah. it. Um, but no, they don't. They scream. There's a lot of tears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, um, the, thing that's a, the thing that we want to, everybody to understand is that skin testing is safe, especially if um, the patient doesn't have anything that would make any chronic um, instability from a heart or a respiratory standpoint. So if you have a four-month-old who's already had two wheezing events, putting them in the ER, we would probably want to see that patient maybe start some medicines to sustain their wheezing. And once, and I'd probably see him back in three to four weeks, if the wheezing was well controlled, then skin testing could, uh, could begin. Um, but if they're not having those things and many children won't have a lot of chronic wheezing under the age of one, if they do, it's usually because of recurrent viral infections, or it may be because of a, a heart disease, which is more rare. Uh, but if they're not having those things, uh, then there's really no barrier to skin testing. And skin prick testing is usually done by these plastic prick devices. We wipe the patient's back off with an alcohol swipe. And as long as they're off antihistamines, uh, Benadryl, Zyrtec, uh, the generic form of Zyrtec, Cetirazine, Claritin, the generic version of that, Loratadine, those suppress our ability to elicit a positive skin test. So if they're off those things and the patient is stable, we can do select prick testing, um, milk, egg, soy, wheat, things of that nature. Uh, and oftentimes early in life, milk is the most uh, milk is the most important one to establish. So we prick the patient's back and we wait 15 minutes for the reaction to evolve and the reaction should be a hive. A negative skin test uh, is going to be a bunch of red little dots on the baby's back and one big bright positive dot which is the histamine so we have to have a positive control the positive control should always be big and bright and positive and the negative control should always be a little red ditzel a little red negative dot and if everything else looks like the saline if everything else is little red negative dots then what you're seeing there especially with milk is that there is no risk of life-threatening anaphylaxis with cow milk protein introduction, um, cow milk protein formula, because obviously under a year of age, you're going to do breastfeeding or cow milk protein formula, not regular cow milk. Um, so that's good. A lot of times, we, a lot of times what we also do as a backup, and this is really neat how it's worked out because the Australians first started doing this and they started finding a higher yield of positive diagnoses when they would take raw allergen. It's not really raw allergen when you get it pasteurized milk from the grocery store, but we use our milk extract uh, and we use casein. If those things are negative, I'll often, I'll often tell my parents to bring a, a small cup of cow milk, whether it's from the grocery store or the gas station, what have you, and we take a one prick device, dunk it in the milk, and then prick baby skin with it. If those things are negative, that's a very, very good sign. Um, usually, I won't do any blood work for eczema or feeding difficulties, eczema, reflux-like symptoms, um, diarrhea, feeding difficulties, things like that. The blood work is usually not too helpful. 
Um, if a patient has a severe episode of anaphylaxis, they got they were breastfeeding with mom and then they got switched over to Gerber Good Start. And then they had an immediate reaction, hives, wheezing, vomiting, and they end up in the ER. Skin testing and blood testing are very good ideas. For just eczema or for feeding difficulties, blood work is not very reliable. The other thing that's really, really important to, to make known is that if you have a positive skin test, then you're at risk um, for, you are potentially at risk for that immediate reactivity. But if you have a negative skin test, that doesn't mean that you won't have any problems with cow milk protein formula. So it's really important to, for patients to understand that we can have allergic antibody mediated cow milk protein allergy that, that you've got stuff that's got positive skin tests and then you've got stuff that they can react to it, um, but they don't have a positive skin test. And what you have over here is your allergic proctitis. So they have uh, dyspepsia and loose stool and blood in the bowels and you got that hemocult test uh, that's positive. Uh, they can have um, they can have food protein induced pericolitis uh, where they have you know, you're introducing the milk protein and they're having severe vomiting, severe diarrhea, and it's causing their blood volume to go very low and they end up like they're having, they're, they're having shock. Uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, they can have a negative milk prick skin test, but they can still have allergic esophageal inflammation. So there's all sorts of different GI specific problems that they can have with a negative prick test. So for a lot of times, if the parents are saying, we tried this, we tried this, we tried Gerber Good Start, we tried Similac Soy, and we're still having just diarrhea after diarrhea after diarrhea, and his skin looks terrible. The milk skin test doesn't mean that they can, the milk skin test, if it's negative, if I look at it and go, oh, it's negative, we're prick to prick with the whole cow milk, oh, that's negative, great, go back to cow milk formula. No, based on the history, I just know that they don't need an EpiPen injector. Just based on the history, I don't need, they don't need that. And then I start working with them saying, we're going to try to introduce these different types of formulas. And, and the real question based on the history, are they going to need an extensively hydrosylated formula, something like Nutramagen or Alimentum, or are they going to need uh, an amino acid formula? Hang on. For the, um, a lot of people don't realize, um, under, understand what you mean by the hydrologized formula. That means that they don't okay. have the dairy in it. So, folks, if you are a recurrent listener in the podcast um, course done by um, our sweet friend, the allergist, he breaks down all the different um, formula types. So, Alimentum is one of those that it does not have the larger protein um, and it's dairy free. So, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So, um we call it non-allergic cow milk uh, intolerance or cow milk allergy because they didn't have a positive skin test. So a lot of your patients with uh, chronic diarrhea and eczema um, can do well with something like alimentum or nutramagen. And that's where the milk proteins are broken down, uh, but they're not totally broken down to the building block level, to the amino acid level. Mm -hmm. Now, it's important to give, if you have chronic diarrhea, chronic GI symptoms, and a negative milk skin test, it's important to give those um, formulas a really good try. Uh, there was a recent paper that showed that when you have all these patients that have chronic diarrhea, failure to thrive, not growing well, negative milk skin test, 
that if you immediately put those patients on neocates, that's the super expensive predominant amino acid formula, they all get better. The problem is this one study, it was really neat. They put them on neocate for four weeks and then immediately switched them back to something like Nutramogen. And many of those patients still did fine. Still, still did fine. Well, yeah. The problem that we have going forward, though, is that there tends to be for non-allergic cow milk allergy, chronic eczema, GI feeding issues, diarrhea, failure to thrive, negative milk skin test, those situations, about 30% of those patients will end up failing a Nutramogen or an Alimentum, that extensively hydrolyzed uh, formula. The other weird thing that we have in that situation is that um, there's several studies suggesting that even when they're tolerating Alimentum or um, even when they're tolerating Alimentum or, or Nutramogen, uh, they actually can grow better on Neocate. But the biggest problem with Neocate is access and cost. Many of your families are just sitting there going, it's so expensive. I can't keep up with this. My insurance won't pay for it. And especially with Medicaid, you have to go through this long, arduous process to document that the patient really does need Neocate. And then your referral is like 90 days long and then Medicaid shuts you down again or something like that. So it really it really is difficult for these families to continue to get it. Um, but that, that those are some of the big challenges. Uh, the other thing that's really important for people to understand is that if you have, a, you know, blood in the stool, allergic proctitis, if you have uh, that chronic diarrhea on Gerber Good Start, on regular cow milk Similac, that switching over to soy is typically not the answer. Uh, there was one Italian study, and it was over, it was 2,100 infants, 2,100 infants with cow milk allergy, with negative, non-allergic cow milk allergy. Um, and switching over to soy, um, 53% of those infants failed soy formula under three months of age, and 35% were still failing soy formula around 12 months of age. So um, it's very interesting because it's a different dynamic for those kids that have immediate anaphylaxis with, with cow milk protein. So if you have big old hunk and positive skin test to cow milk and you had to rush to the ER because your baby anaphylaxed, to cow milk protein, 90% of those kids are going to be fine on alimentum, uh, now Nutramogen, uh, and many of them are going to be able to switch to soy and be okay because uh, switching to alimentum, 90% of them will be successful, Successful, 10% will fail. Um, they anaphylax to cow milk protein, you switch them to a soy-based formula, and something more like 85% of them will be successful, 15% will fail. So it seems to be the non-allergic cow milk protein allergy kids have a way higher cross-reactivity, have a way higher failure weight with soy. So if they have a negative skin test to milk and they're still having chronic eczema, chronic diarrhea, all that sort of stuff, best to skip the soy protein formulas and go straight to your Nutramogens or Alimentums. Okay. All right. Now... I have a kiddo on my caseload who is a little bit older. He's two. Um, baseline is um, we have Down syndrome, hypertrophy of adenoids, palatine tonsils. They just came back with severe exacerbated GERD um, as well as um, 
one heck of an ulcer as a polite way of saying it. And I picked him up. Where's the ulcer? Where is the ulcer? Okay. It's in his stomach. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's bad. I went in and when I walked in the door and he'd had a significant amount of, and I'm air quoting folks feeding therapy before me. And y'all know the bane of my existence. If you have listened, I do not think that food vibrates and I do not think that chewing on hard plastic is going to keep teach a child to necessarily um, increase and improve their PO intake. So I walk in the door I can hear that kid's laryngeal malaysia across the room. He's got a horrible strider. My first step is to get that kid into the ENT because if the aero portion of the aero digestive tract is shot, there's nothing that we're going to do. All right. So we get into um, ENT in town, um, does a adenoidectomy, his second adenoidectomy, a tonsillectomy. They do a supraglottoplasty. And bear in mind, the surgery had to be postponed twice because the kid kept getting pneumonia. Yeah. The child is only taking, um, he was only taking whole milk and yogurt, but we had, we had the eczema and I mean, like I'm, I'm watching the eczema, like, I mean, it's all in his little hair. Like mom had a hard time taking him to the barber because he didn't want his hair touched because it like made it exacerbated like his eczema. Um, but what was interesting to me and what I took away from the research that I've done, his, um, it looked like milk allergy from the upper respiratory stage. He would only drink a bottle of whole milk and almost immediately within like 10 or 15 minutes of finishing the whole bottle, his secretions would change consistency and they were like thick and ropey. Like he would start sneezing and it was like, it was like I was pulling out, um, ropes of thick snot out of his face. And I mean, like, I know I'm not the mother, but like, I'm going to clean the baby up. You know what I mean? Like he's sneezing yeah. and I'm cleaning. But it was surprising to me how little speech pathologists, we're not trained on allergies. Like we, we get zero training in allergies and even less training in reflexes. And so I did not recognize at the time when I first started, but retrospectively, I've had numerous kids that have had, have had eczema, but They've also had this chronic upper respiratory presentation of milk. And is that what I'm seeing? A milk allergen well, with that? Yeah. Milk, um, the, the fat content of milk um, itself tends to increase post-nasal drip. Okay. Uh, what, what you're also talking about there is are they having allergic rhinitis? Are they having allergic rhinitis uh, to food? Uh, which is possible because the upper airway is just is a big part is a part of the body and full of immune cells, just like your GI tract, just like your lungs, just like your skin. So when, if you're, if somebody is having eczema and rhinitis and it get worsens after, after milk, you know, a family doctor or a pediatrician could easily say, let's do a two week uh, milk and dairy elimination uh, and you may you may see um, some good results. Now, during that time period, also, if you still don't have access to an allergist, if they're much better after two weeks, um, then you could reintroduce dairy to see how the patient performs. And that does bring me to another point. We talk about skin testing. We talk about blood testing. But how the patient performs uh, under a real challenge with said food. Um, is the most important way that we diagnose food allergy, which is why 
if somebody has severe reactions to certain foods, but the skin testing or blood testing may be negative, I always arrange for a challenge in our office. The gold standard for diagnosing food allergy, especially immediate reactivity to a certain food, whether it be milk, egg, or peanut, is how they do when they eat the food directly under your observation. So if they can eat peanut butter, if they can drink cow milk or eat scrambled egg, and not have eggs, uh, not have hives, not have lip and tongue swelling, not have vomiting, not have acute rhinitis. I've had patients that have eaten scrambled eggs and they've, their eyes have turned red. They haven't swollen up, but they've gotten conjunctivitis, runny nose and congestion, and they're itching all over. Uh, and these are young children that might be an 18 month old, a uh, two month old or something like that. And you would say that that is a low grade anaphylactic reaction. So the food challenge is the best way to diagnose immediate reactivity with all of your chronic feeding dysfunction, um, you know, allergic proctitis, cow milk, protein intolerance, uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, the food challenge is less meaningful because you could give them something in the office right there, have them wait a couple hours, maybe nothing's happening. And the next day their eczema is increased and they had diarrhea all night long. So that, that is, so the food challenge is the gold standard for immediate reactivity. The, goal, the, food, sta- the food challenge is the gold standard for do they need that EpiPen or not. That, that, that's, that's the most important thing. Now, for your people with your negative skin test, that's usually where you're tinkering with mom's breast milk if she wants to continue to breastfeed, which is so important. Um, I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that mom can drink milk and dairy, Okay. And certain allergenic types of uh, cow milk proteins can make it into mom's breast milk, although it is a very small amount. And mom's always asking about that. And that's fine. Mom, mom wants to know. It's a good question. Uh, but it turns out that in your nutramigen and your alimentum and stuff like that, um, that the amount of digested cow milk proteins that are in mom's breast milk is near equivalent to that small amount that may end up in alimentum or nutramigens. So that's why a lot of kids, you know, when mom's thinking about should she go on milk uh, elimination, if the kids gets be- if the kid gets better, great. Uh, but if mom's still eating milk and dairy and the child's doing very poorly on nutramigen, that allows you to make that decision because you know that those levels of allergenic cow milk protein may be similar in those situations. Okay. All right. You, you, <laughs> You made my ADD kick in. <laughs> no, it's okay. I went off in like 14 different squirrels in my head and I was like, wait, I have a question for this. Yeah, I, it's my, you know, it's my fault too. Cause I think we, I think I've veered very heavily into the second talk. So I apologize. That, but, that's, that's okay. We'll just, I will, I will make a mental note to like answer those, ask those questions like later on, but okay. So back to this gold, the, the food allergy Food challenge. Food challenge in your office being the gold standard. Thank you. See, I'm still squirreling on the other questions that I want to ask you for the second one. Um, everybody that's seen me talk live is like, oh, yeah, her ADD, she needs to go running. <laughs> but what about for the kids? See, this is where it, it, this is where we camp within the scope of practice of a speech pathologist. Like, 
I get the kids, I get the calls when the lactation consultant can't get the kids to latch, they call me. Nine times out of 10, it's laryngomalacia, trachomalacia at baseline, but I'm watching them latch and I'm watching the eczema and the parents tell me, oh, well, the pediatrician's given us this formula, this formula, they're five months old, they've been on like five different formulas and maybe mother's breastfed in between. And my first question is, have you gone dairy or soy free? when you're when you're latching because that's one of the first question questions that um uh the lactation consultant has trained me to ask and other pediatricians have trained me to ask but you're saying that that can still pass through yeah it's called beta lactoglobulin and a small amount can pass through um we're, we're talking maybe you know per ounce we're talking maybe 25 or 30 micrograms but there are babies that can react to that. Um, it's, it's why we, we go back and we're talking about the failure rate of things like Nutramagen and Alimentum. And it's because they're not amino acid formulas. They're extensively hydrolyzed. So there are some allergenic cow milk, uh, proteins in there. They're just extensively broken down. So it's not, it's not 100%. So that's why you do have some patients with, um, these feeding disorders, uh, this chronic diarrhea, failure to thrive, uh, you know, the eczema, and all those things are happening when you're on Gerber Good Start, Similac, Gentilese, all those things. They, they can't tolerate those. So you think, ah, I'll switch my baby to Alimentum and they'll be fine. Well, it turns out that that beta-lactoglobulin um, is still present in a small amount in the Nutramagen, still present in a small amount in the Alimentum. And about 30% of your kids can pick that up in their guts. They can react to it. And it turns out a breastfeeding mom who's on milk and soy can present a similar amount of that beta-lactoglobulin fraction through her breast milk. And so baby can react to both of those. Um, it's why in those situations we work so hard to get the kid on Neocate, if at all possible, uh, because their eczema will get better, their diarrhea will get better, uh, they will put on weight better. Um, there is even some studies that show that when you have a kid who's not doing very well uh, on Alimentum or, or, or uh, Nutramagen in these aspects, uh, uh, cognitively, they, they can actually do better. There are signs that they, um, you know, that they, that they learn better uh, or later on. Um, but I mean, this is just, there's so much more that we know uh, about these situations that we have, then, then we have the real world applicability, uh, to change things because there's always, um, you know, these barriers, um, you know, the patient needs a diagnosis, you know, the patient needs a change. Um, you got to talk to this person, you got to, you know, convince them to refer to us and, and then we got to work with insurance to approve the neocade and it's just, it's a process. Um, I got to be honest, um, from the speech pathology perspective, a lot of times, unfortunately, um, because we work in the deep, deep South, because I am female and a female dominant profession, I have a very difficult time convincing some of um, the um, pediatricians that what the child is actually presenting with is a food allergy. I get a lot of times, oh, it's GERD, put them on yeah. rigidity. Well, you know what you... Well, there's more, there's more and more female pediatricians, certainly nowadays. Yes. Thank you. Yay for the females. <laughs> well, many of my, um, uh, many of my colleagues in allergy are also, are also women and fantastic doctors. What, what I will say about this is that 
this is, I actually mentioned this in your Skisha talk um, because it's years ago. a good job there, by the way. Sorry, uh, Squirrel. They loved you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah. And so years ago, I was like, what is an allergy? Because I was a resident and I was trying to get into allergy fellowship. Um, and I took a very strict textbook definition. What is an allergy? You can document an allergic antibody through a skin test or through a blood test. And when you get exposed to that thing, you immediately go into allergic shock. You need an EpiPen and that's an allergy and I'm sticking to it. And for a long time, food allergy did fit that strict criteria until our joint counsel several years ago said, no, no, there is that. And that is food allergy. But it actually turns out that we've got all these different syndromes that are based in immune reactivity, but not all immune reactivity is allergic and not all this immune reactivity is mediated through an allergic antibody. Sometimes it's mediated through cells. Sometimes it's mediated through infection fighting antibodies, something called IgG. So there are all these adverse reactions to foods that are mediated through the immune system, but they're not all going to have a positive skin test. So all these things that we are talking about are, in fact, food allergy. So allergic proctitis, F. pies, eosinophilic esophagitis. Right, explain, explain allergic proctitis for those that well, don't know. Oh, sorry. Well, allergic proctitis is where you mom is breastfeeding. Things are going okay. Mom switches to a cow milk protein formula and the baby starts having uh, abdominal cramping, irritability after the bottle, loose stool, visible blood in the stool. And what goes on there is that the cow milk protein irritates the colon. It causes mucosal bleeding. Uh, it, ca it causes a stalling out of weight gain. And then you see the blood. Uh, sometimes the blood will be microscopic. Uh, you know, if you know you're switching over to that, you know, uh, Similac protein for cow milk protein formula, your pediatrician will still do a hemocult, will still test for blood in the stool. And if it even if it's microscopic, even if it's there, we say the, the old older term for that is allergic proctitis, which is mm -hmm. really the skin test in that situation will be negative. So that tells you that it's an older term. So it's not officially allergic in the conventional sense. Another term is people just say it's cow milk protein intolerance they'll they, you know they, they just can't tolerate the cow milk protein so in those situations that's why your pediatrician in that situation is going to say oh no we're not switching to Similac soy you need Nutramagen you need Alimentum because many of those patients will fail switching to soy in fact the younger they are the more the more they'll fail soy protein formula and that's okay. All right, you use the other term FPIs. Can you explain that for yeah. folks? Uh, FPIs is um, is a little is a little bit more uncommon, but FPIs is, stands for food protein enteric uh, food protein induced enterocolitis. Um, it you have uh, one typically one food that triggers vomiting and diarrhea, and it can be recurrent and it can come on very quickly. Uh, many times it can uh, land the patient in the ER and the patient is so dehydrated, the baby or the child is so dehydrated that the ER doctor thinks the baby's in shock and they start fluids, but they also start antibiotics thinking that the baby has an infection. Mm -hmm. uh, there, is, there is a chronic version of that. We call it chronic FPIs uh, and milk has been a big trigger in, in that. Um, all those, all those patients will have a negative skin test to milk. All those patients will have negative blood testing to milk. But if you reintroduce milk, they will have 
voluminous diarrhea. They, they just will not gain weight. They will not thrive. Uh, and they can land up in the ER looking like uh, they're in shock. But milk is not the only trigger. Uh, rice is a trigger. Uh, soy has been a trigger. Egg has been a trigger. We, we, what about rice cereal? Yeah, rice cereal. Uh, in fact, the worst Epcise case I had was in residency um, and a child ended up in the ICU the first, the first or the second time they had rice cereal added to their formula. Yeah. See, and that's, so that's interesting because when we're chasing all of this in the speech pathology world, when we're chasing the arching at the breast, the arching at the bottle, um, we're first taught, if we've had a pediatrician class, we're first taught signs and symptoms of GERD, not allergies. First thing is GERD. One of the first things that um, our well, families are taught to do is to put rice cereal, oatmeal cereal in with the formula, not change the formula, but um, not thicken the formula, but add a little bit of cereal. It'll sit heavier on their stomach. It'll keep it down and pre- um, prevent them from having the, you yeah. know, the illnesses event that's going to come. And that's not a bad recommendation because um, I'm talking about, you know, the boogeyman of FPIs, but it, it's my it's my bailiwick to do that sort of thing because the, the more severe patients get referred to me. So I see it more often. Yep. Uh, it, 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 it's in my wheelhouse and I'm always thinking about it. But for your general practitioners and definitely for what you guys do, that's a good recommendation. It's something that you should do because it's highly unlikely that you're, you know, you're going to run into way more cases of regular garden variety reflux, esophagitis, regular garden variety GERD, way more of those you're going to run into uh, than you are um, than, than you are FPIs. Uh, the thing with reflux is that, you know, the, under a year of age, reflux is physiologic. They're going to do it. Um, they're, they're going to do it and you're going to have a lot of happy spitters. I, I'm, the, you, I'm the last person I have to tell you guys that. You, you obviously know a happy spitter when you see one. Uh, the real question is, is does their reflux become so pathological that it prevents them from gaining weight and that it needs to, needs to be medicated? Uh, you all, you'll often see halitosis. You'll often see anemia. You may see pneumonia. You may see failure to gain weight. A lot of times, if the family doesn't have a distinct history of allergy, if the baby doesn't have eczema, if the baby doesn't have wheezing, if there's no family history of allergy, and you're seeing um, and you're seeing a lot of signs of dyspepsia that that they're having reflux, that they're having cough, that they're arching their back, uh, and you're having less diarrhea, you know. So with reflux, you don't have a lot of presentation of diarrhea, uh, you know. So if you're having those things. And the patient wants to end that without diarrhea, without eczema, and it seemed to be repetitive, no matter what type of food or what type of uh, preparation you try. Those are your good. Those are good patients to add on renitidine. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said something a minute ago about wheezing. When I go in and I hear wheezing in my newborns and in my first three, four, five month olds, my first thought when I hear a wheezing or I hear an inhalation strider is the ring of Malaysia or trachea Malaysia. So my yeah. first thought is to send them to an ENT, but yeah. you referenced wheezing a couple of times. And so now I'm thinking, is that wheezing also an overt sign symptom of respiratory allergy? Well, Where is that? What is this thought? Wheezing under a year of age, true wheezing in the lower airways is usually due to a viral infection. It's the number one reason, number one reason why why they why they will wheeze in their lower respiratory tract. You're not uh, taking, taking upper respiratory. 
yeah, taking out tracheomalacia, taking out those things. Uh, a wheeze is where they will struggle to expel air from their chest because they're having lower airway spasming and obstruction. And they have to have oxygen or albuterol to help facilitate oxygen just to get oxygen in their uh, bloodstream, but um, have albuterol to pop their lungs open. Now, I bring that up because children that have eczema and children that wheeze with a viral infection under one year of age are more likely to have long-term wheeze, um, especially if they have a family history of asthma. So, so I, bring that, I bring that up because going back to what we were talking about before, uh, the, I always look at it from this sort of global standpoint. Is this child likely to be allergic? And if the dad has asthma and the mom has eczema and the child has eczema early on and they've had two wheezing episodes under a year of age and they have, and they have all those things, uh, and they're really struggling on alimentum and they really, and, and, and they weren't doing well with Gerber good start before that. Well, I know this child is going to have allergic problems. So I don't think that I would need to switch over to, um, you know, uh, new in that situation. You know, I don't think that I'm going to have to start a reflux medicine in that patient because I'm looking at that patient and I know that they're allergic. They come from an allergic pedigree. Versus a patient that didn't have any of those problems and just had the back arching and they had a lack of diarrhea and maybe they, you know, and, and, and maybe they've had some documented anemia and things like that. Okay, well, that is the patient who's probably going to benefit from renitidine. But it's very, it's very, very challenging. It's very, very challenging, mainly because it's not like you can do endoscopy on every single patient under a year of age. You can't, you can't yes. do that. Oh, you can't. So. No. Okay. All right. But before we switch over to Q and A, um, for if you, if you had a three minute microphone with all speech pathologists that are treating our infants and toddlers medically fragile, here it is. What do you want us to know about getting them into an allergist and starting the allergy testing process? Um. The most important things that we as allergists want people to know is that early referral ends up in better care. Skin testing is not dangerous. Skin testing is accurate and it's non-invasive. As long as the patient is stable and not wheezing and off antihistamines, the skin testing can occur easily in the outpatient setting and it can add valuable information to drive a better dietary plan. Uh, and when you have a better dietary plan, uh, using that skin testing, the patient will gain weight, the patient will sleep better, and oftentimes the patient will have better skin care. Uh, and what we were talking about before, the parents will have very, better quality of life. Uh, the other things I would also say is that um, you do have to have those situations where some patients have more severe reactions. So you are going to want to know who's at risk for anaphylaxis um, and who is going to need that, um, that, that epinephrine injector uh, prescription. Uh, the last thing is, is that um, what we can do as allergists is also help um, predict some problems that may go on in the future. Uh, a big part of what we do with, aller with allergy is that we help risk stratify who's going to have problems even under a year of age. 
Uh, a big part of that is introducing peanuts successfully. A big part of that is introducing eggs successfully. And a big part of that also is helping parents understand that over-testing, over-testing with blood tests and skin tests and using multiple tests to customize a safe diet is often, is, is often more dangerous to the child, is often more traumatic to the child and the family because they want us to skin test the baby to every single thing uh, so that the baby will never have a problem again. Well, the science doesn't work that way. That goes back to the fact, how does the baby perform when the baby is or the child is actually eating that food? Uh, because the skin test shows that the patient has an allergic antibody, but it doesn't always mean that the patient will have a terrible reaction to that food. The patient's history with the food and how they react with direct ingestion of the food and that history and how their body manifests those symptoms is the most important part of the history. And those are the things that help drive uh, our workup and our treatment. Mm -hmm. I have to rethink a couple of patients on my caseload. So thank you. <laughs> All right. Okay, now that now that my brain's in tilt, um, give me two seconds. We're going to switch it over to the phone lines. Um, Greg, thank you for coming. I, I am grateful. We we desperately need this information. Um, very few programs have a mandatory pediatric dysphagia class for SLPs across the nation, and um, even fewer programs have an optional peds dysphagia. So we get a dysphagia class, which primarily focuses on adults, and we might get 15 to 20 minutes on allergies as a general rule of thumb. So this is, um, this is a much needed area, which is why I have pestered you for the last couple of years. So thank you. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I am your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind and feed those babies. 